We uh, once again come to Luke chapter 9. We're picking up with verse 18 as week by week we are making our way through uh, this gospel that Luke has provided for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let me read this morning's passage in your hearing. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 18, And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, or others say Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Father, bless your word to our hearing this day. We ask in the name of your Savior, our, our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When you pick up a book, as I hope you do now and then, and you start to read it, where do you begin? The answer to that question is not really as obvious as it may seem. You may be thinking, well, someone begins a book, they begin at the beginning, of course. And I suppose there are exceptions to that, but it's true as far as it goes. I suppose someone somewhere likes to pick up a mystery novel, go to the end, figure out who done it, and then go back and see how the author gets there. But most people begin at the beginning. But what's the beginning? Particularly when we're dealing with nonfiction, this is a legitimate question. Many people will say the beginning is chapter 1. But is it? What about the introduction? I mean, the author put an introduction before chapter 1 for a reason. He must have thought that the introduction was the beginning. I know a lot of people skip that. I've never understood why the introduction to a book often provides a great deal of useful information, which is helpful as one works his way through the rest of that book. Typically, it tells you not only what the author wants to tell you in the book and how he is going to tell you what he wants to tell you, but also why he's telling you what he has put in this book. He tells you why he bothered to write it in the first place. If you remember, way back at the beginning of our study in the Gospel of Luke, right there in the first few verses of his Gospel, Luke gives us his introduction, and he deals with all those questions. And he lays it right out for us in the first few verses of his Gospel. He explains what he's going to write, and he explains how he's going to Write it. He says that he has compiled an account of the things accomplished among us. 
and that having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, that he's going to write it out in consecutive order. He also gives us his purpose for writing. He's writing specifically to a man named Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And there you have it. In those first few verses, you know what he's writing, you know why he's doing it, and how he's going to tell you about it. And that's what we've seen him do thus far in our study of his gospel. So Luke's been giving us an account of what he calls the things accomplished among us, He's been telling us primarily about the things that Jesus has been doing. Now, of course, there's a sequel to the gospel called the book of Acts. Luke is also referring to that, these things accomplished among us. He's starting with Jesus, but he's going to go all the way through to talk about what happens after the resurrection through the the apostles, through the church. So that's going to continue. As we continue to work our way through this gospel, particularly the first nine chapters that we've seen, we can make some inferences regarding the most important questions that Luke seeks to answer. The most important, above all else, is what we're dealing with this morning. Who is Jesus? And like a mystery novel, Luke has left us a series of clues And if we're paying attention, those clues lead us to an answer. Here are some of the clues we've seen thus far. We've seen Jesus teach with God's authority. We've seen Jesus display power over sickness. We've seen him display power over creation. We've seen him display power over the spiritual realm. We've seen Jesus display power over death. We've seen Jesus display the power to forgive sin. Luke's been laying out one clue after another, all intended to act as the proverbial breadcrumbs. If you follow the breadcrumbs, you'll get where Luke wants you to go. And where he wants you to go is to arrive at the conclusion that Jesus Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so in the passage that we're looking at this morning in chapter 9, you've got a high point in his gospel. He's been building to this point. Jesus' teaching is unlike the teaching of other men because he teaches with the authority of God. He stands up in the synagogue there in his hometown of Nazareth and he declares, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and give sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus really did mean that what Isaiah prophesied back there in Isaiah chapter 61 of his prophecy. 600 years before was actually about him. Isaiah was talking about Jesus. We know that because Jesus says to everyone who was present that day, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He takes what Isaiah said and he applies it to himself. I'm him. 
He went down to Capernaum, and when he taught there, those who heard him teach couldn't believe what they were hearing. They had never heard anyone teach the way Jesus taught. And they were amazed because he was teaching with authority. That is, his teaching was authoritative in and of itself. Jesus didn't appeal to the authority of others as all the other teachers in Israel did. He didn't have to. Because he, in his own person, is authoritative. Today I stand here in this pulpit telling you what Luke wrote. I'm not the authority. I'm referring to another authority. Sometimes I'll, 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 I'll say something to you on the authority of an author, a commentator, a theologian, another preacher. I'm not standing here speaking to you as if you are obligated to my word. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't say the Mishnah says this and the Talmud says that or Rabbi so-and-so said the other thing. He said, I say to you. And that's where it ended. Jesus displayed power over sickness, healing lepers and paralytics and those with every manner of illness according to his sovereign power whenever he chose to do so. He displayed power over creation, commanding those who would be his disciples to put their net over on the other side of the boat after they had spent all night fishing and caught nothing. And when they did so, they caught so many fish that the boats began to sink. And on that same sea, when he and his disciples were caught in a storm, it was Jesus who rebuked the wind and the waves and ordered the storm to be calm. Jesus displayed power over the spiritual realm, casting out a legion of demons from a man whose life had become a living hell, but who was freed from that hell by the power of Jesus. And when he commanded him to proclaim the great things that God had done for him, the man went and he obeyed. And Luke says that he went about proclaiming all that Jesus had done for him after Jesus had commanded him to proclaim all that God had done for him. It was Jesus who displayed power over death, raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. It was Jesus who displayed the power to forgive sin, saying to the woman who had kissed his feet and anointed his head with oil, your sins have been forgiven, even though it caused those who witnessed the scene to ask among themselves, who is this man? who even forgives sins. Only God could do these things that Jesus did. Each one of these things is another breadcrumb, leading you to the conclusion that Luke desires you to reach, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The passage before us today marks a turning point in Luke's gospel. Luke makes a very important shift from leaving us clues as to the conclusion he wishes us to draw to direct proclamations and declarations concerning the identity of Jesus. You see this beginning in verse 18. 
And verse 19, it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. In the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, as in our own day, everybody has an opinion concerning who Jesus is. Everybody has an opinion about everything. But for our context, we'll narrow that down a bit. Remember, we saw earlier in this same chapter that by this time, Herod had already executed John the Baptist. So some were suggesting that perhaps Jesus was really John the Baptist risen from the dead. After all, he preached the same gospel of the kingdom. And he exhibited the same kind of fearless ministry in terms of challenging the religious and political leadership of his day. So some had the opinion that he was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Another popular opinion was that he was Elijah. Based on the passage in Malachi, this was an understandable mistake as well. Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the people were waiting for Elijah. They were told that he was going to come. So they're looking for him. And in their understanding, the great and terrible day of the Lord would have been that day when God would destroy the Roman occupiers and once again establish the throne of David there in Jerusalem. That's what they were waiting for. So when Jesus comes preaching with authority, performing miracles and raising the dead, it was only natural for some of them to see in Jesus the strength and power of Elijah. But he was not John, and he was not Elijah. There were others who didn't want to be quite so specific. They were content to entertain the possibility that Jesus was one of the prophets of, of old who had returned, even though they couldn't quite put their finger on exactly which one he was. And of course, there's a sense in which each of these guesses are kind of on the right track. The people saw the works of Jesus and they heard the words he spoke and they couldn't help but form opinions concerning his identity. One thing was obvious to everyone. He was not just another guy. He wasn't just another rabbi. It is interesting, isn't it, that among the suggestions being offered by the people, there is one which is noticeably absent. As Peter responds to Jesus' question concerning what the people were saying about him, apparently no one yet suggests that he's the Messiah. Eventually, some will dare to raise that possibility. But the time of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, just a week before the crucifixion, 
The crowds will line the roads shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And later in chapter 19 of Luke, he says the crowds began to sing a messianic psalm. Psalm 118, which says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Which, of course, Luke includes in the Christmas account. As the angels come and proclaim glory in the highest. But, even then, the crowds didn't get it right. They got the Messiah part right, of course, although by the end of the week there would be crowds shouting, not Hosanna, but crucify him. But for now, as he enters the city, they did get the Messiah part right. The problem was they didn't really understand who the Messiah was and what he would do. They saw only half the picture. And so as Jesus enters the city, they sang Psalm 118. They did not sing Psalm 22, which is the messianic psalm about a suffering Messiah. They sang about the Messiah who would be king, but they did not sing of the Messiah who would suffer. They were looking for a political and military conqueror, but they didn't understand that before Jesus could take his crown, he would first have to endure the cross. They didn't get that part of it. So when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? The answers that people were suggesting were varying degrees of wrong. It's been 2,000 years since then, and nothing much has changed. Many will say that he was a great teacher. Of course, as C.S. Lewis made clear, that's not an option that Jesus left open to us. If what Jesus claimed about himself is true, then he is God incarnate. And if he is not God incarnate, but merely a man making those claims for himself, then he's not a great moral teacher. He's either a lying demon or a lunatic. There are others, primarily in various cults, who want to say that Jesus is some kind of angel or demigod. Islam says, like the Jews of Jesus' day, that he was just another prophet. Others want to say Jesus was just a man who became Messiah at his baptism. Over the past 150 years or so, we're hearing more and more of this today, of course. We've heard that Jesus was a a radical political figure, intent on tearing down the power structure. But before he could do that, he got taken down by the man. (laughs) Of course, there are still those who, against all evidence, claim that Jesus never even existed. When it comes to public opinion, the answers are all across the board. Some say this, some say that. The real issue is not what people think. The issue is what does God's word say? If we're going to get to the bottom of this extremely important question, we've got to go to the word of God. We see what the Bible specifically says about the identity of Jesus and Of course, we don't need to look very far for an answer because after Jesus hears about the conjecture of men, he then asks for the conclusion of the disciples. Now that you've told me what everybody else thinks, what about you? 
He said to them, verse 20, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now Peter is answering for the rest of the disciples as he often did. And here's an amazing truth concerning the identity of Jesus. What the masses saw was pretty much the same as what the disciples saw. They saw Jesus perform miracles, and so did the disciples. They heard Jesus preach, and so did the disciples. They saw Jesus lift up bread to heaven and pray, and so did the disciples. So why do they arrive at different conclusions? As you may know, Matthew provides us with an account of this conversation as well, and he gives us a bit more detail than Luke does. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, we read this, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And that is why Peter's answer, as he spoke for the disciples, was different than the answers that the crowds, the people, were coming up with. It came from a different source. Peter's answer was not conjecture, it was revelation. Peter's information came straight from God, and if you have come to the same conclusion that Peter came to, it is only because God has accomplished that same act of self-revelation in your life. That's what the Word of God does through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what happened to C.S. Lewis when he and his brother Warney uh, took a trip to the zoo one day in September 1931. His brother was driving a motorcycle and Lewis was riding in the sidecar, something I've always wanted to do. <laughs> you don't see many sidecars around anymore. Lewis describes it very simply. He says, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. When we got to the zoo, I did. <laughs> what changed? Somewhere during that trip, God revealed his son to Lewis. This was Spurgeon's experience as he sat in this a little primitive Methodist chapel one night during a blizzard that had prevented him from going to hear the very famous preacher of the day, which he had intended to do. Instead, he describes having to endure the preaching of a man who had not been intended to preach that night at all. The actual preacher got stuck, I guess, because of the storm that was Spurgeon's conjecture anyway, couldn't get there. And so you have this man who apparently had no gift in the area of preaching, but he took it upon himself to do so because nobody else was there to do it. And Spurgeon writes about what a terrible preacher this guy was. He says he, you know, he was a cobbler or a tailor or something. He just didn't know what to do. 
So Spurgeon says he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. (laughs) Which is what happens. You stand up and maybe you've never preached before. Don't have any clue as to what you're doing. And you look at the text, say, okay, I'll read the text. And you read the text, and then, <laughs> now what? <laughs> the text was, look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. By the end of the sermon, Spurgeon recalled, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. What changed? What changed in Lewis? What changed in Spurgeon? What changed in me as a 13-year-old in a school gymnasium? What changed in you when you heard the gospel and believed? Jesus was revealed to you through the word, through the gospel. Whereas you were blind, now you could see. A supernatural work of God took place in your life. If you now find yourself in Christ. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been revealing to us the identity of Jesus throughout his gospel. Luke tells us that Jesus is the son of David, the legal heir to the throne of David. Luke tells us that Jesus would fulfill the ancient promises regarding salvation and that he is, in fact, the Savior. At Jesus' baptism, we have the account of God the Father declaring Jesus to be his son. And we read about the Holy Spirit descending and anointing Jesus. And that anointing was a kingly anointing. Where do we get our information about the true identity of Jesus? We get it from the word of God. Everything I just mentioned, you find in the first three chapters of Luke alone. Peter's answer was a revelation from God. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And what Peter was getting at was that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, who came from God. He wasn't just born into existence for the first time. He existed before his earthly birth. With God. As God. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see how important it is to know who Jesus really is. Eternal life lies in the balance and is dependent on our knowledge of Jesus' identity. Based on all the facts found in Scripture and based on God opening our eyes, we believe and salvation then becomes a reality. If all we think about Jesus is that he existed, 
or was a good man or a great teacher or a good model for morals, we have not believed and we have yet to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God. We have not yet believed what we need to believe in order to be saved. Knowing Jesus as the Christ, the Savior, that, Jesus himself says, is eternal life. Now, the rest of the story. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone saying the son of man must suffer many things <clears throat> the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day now jesus tells them something that has been hinted at through the entire Bible. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And the disciples are hearing this. Peter has made this great declaration You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right, and they're going to kill me. Jesus has every right to rule and reign. He meets all the criteria. He is the legal heir to David's throne. He is the bloodline to David's throne. He has taught with the authority of God, healed sickness and disease, raised the dead, cured the lame and the deaf, overpowered the forces of darkness by casting out evil spirits. God the Father has declared him from heaven to be his own son. The Holy Spirit has marked him out from the beginning of his earthly ministry. Everything indicates that Jesus will be the next reigning monarch over Israel. Just what everybody has been waiting for and expecting, except for this one little glitch. He's got to die. Which is a problem. If you think that when the Messiah comes, he's going to reinstitute David's throne, death doesn't fit that plan. Now notice that Jesus doesn't simply say he's going to die The Son of Man must suffer many things. That word must cannot be skipped over too quickly. It applies to everything that Jesus then says. He must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. He must be killed. He must be raised up on the third day. This is not a good guess on Jesus' part. He's not saying, you know, guys, the way things are going, I'm not sure this is going to turn out very well. 
He says the Son of Man must suffer, be killed, and be raised. You know what that means, don't you? It means that when someone asks the question, who put Jesus on the cross, the answer is not the Jews, it's not the Romans, it's his Father. God put Jesus on the cross. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah says that he was smitten and afflicted. But by whom was he smitten and afflicted? Isaiah doesn't predict that it was the Romans who would do this. It was the Gentiles who would do this. Or that his own people would turn on him. Isaiah says he was smitten of God and afflicted. God's hand came down upon him. Isaiah says that he was crushed for our iniquities. And then a few lines later, he says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. A few verses later, we read, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And then goes on to describe him being rendered as a guilt offering. Of course, if you want to see the same thing in the New Testament, all you have to do is turn to the book of Acts. In Peter's Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2, he says of Jesus that he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And then a couple of chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, as the church is praying after John and Peter are released from prison, you read in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God controlled it all. He gathered together Herod. Herod, come here. Pilate, come here. Jews, come here. Romans, come here. I have a job for you. You are going to be the instrument of my redemptive purposes. What does all this mean? All this means that in the eternal plan of God, the only way salvation can be attained is through the death of Jesus. Only through the cross can we enter into a saving relationship with God. From eternity past, God, in triune counsel, decreed that the second person of the Godhead would take on human form and go to the cross to save us. If God's people are to be saved, Jesus had to die. These events which Jesus describes in verse 22 were events decreed from the beginning of time. These events would happen exactly as God determined they would. This is Jesus' message to Peter and his disciples and to you and I and every man, woman, and child. Not only is Jesus saying, am I the Christ, but I am the crucified, buried, and risen one. And because these things must happen and did happen, we have confidence that Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, doesn't simply make salvation possible. Jesus actually saves. 
The effects of his death spans the centuries and reaching back to Adam and Eve, up into the lives of his contemporaries in the first century, and then on further to the present day, saving you and me, and then on into the future until the church is complete and he returns again. His death saves. His death secures salvation for God's people and does so without fail. But of course, this leaves you with a question to ask. This is often called Peter's great confession. Is it your confession? What do you say to this question that Jesus is asking? How do you answer this question? Is he your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted in the one who is the Christ, the Son of God? Have you repented of your sin? Are you currently being conformed to his image? Who do you say Jesus is? There is no more important question. You may consider many important questions in your life. You will never consider a question more important than this. Jesus is looking you in the eye and asking Who do you say that I am? If your answer is, you are the Christ, the Son of God, you are the Messiah, then there is joy opening up before you that I can't adequately describe for you. And that you cannot comprehend. And which none of us will ever get to the bottom of. And if that is not your answer, then I pray, however you answer this, it will not remain so. I pray that one day, God will give you the revelation that he has given to Peter and to so many others, so that with the rest of us, you might say, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And you are my Lord and my God. Father, make it so. Father, should there be any here today who do not know Jesus as their Savior, Father, I would pray that you would make it so. Reveal yourself to them through your Son. Cause them, Father, to see their sin and to turn away from it in repentance and to trust in the one who lived and died and rose again for sinners. Father, for those of us who have received the knowledge of Jesus Christ unto salvation, Increase in us the desire that others might know. Cause us, Father, to desire to share this good news with those who so desperately need it. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together as we close our service this morning.